truth of Christianity. I apologize for my voice. I was sick last week, and I'm still suffering under a little bit of a, a sore throat. Mike, our co-host, Dr. Mike Larrakis, is also away today, but we brought back into the studio author Kirk Hastings. Welcome, Kirk. Hi, Keith. Thanks for coming in and uh, bailing Mike out. You know, he has to work, unfortunately. He's not like some of us retired guys who never have to do anything but do radio shows. But, uh, well, that's not true. Uh, all of us are working guys. But uh, today, we're going to finish up with a little bit. We interviewed you and your uh, about your book last week, What is Truth? And we ran out of time because an hour wasn't enough to go over the book. It was very interesting. So we're going to finish off with uh, some more from the book. And then we will get into a topic for maybe the last half hour on the Bible's reliability. How do we know that what they wrote back then is what we have in our Bibles today? So that's an interesting question that we'll be looking at. But I brought with me today a couple of news items, and I should mention that we have our great sound engineer here today, John Cadity, and uh, he's going to be managing the soundboard. So anytime there's something exciting going on, he has a new sound clip that he's going to hit that sounds like this. Well, maybe. He is manning the soundboard, but I'm surprising him because I told him to save it till the end. But we're going to hear it now. That was totally wicked! So that's his voice. and he, he plays. Sounds like his underwear is a little too tight, though. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that great, though? I love that. All right. A couple of news items. Did anybody see this thing that came across? I got it off of uh, Fox News. A press release. Italian scientist reproduces the Shroud of Turin. I saw that. Yeah. Well, uh, it's kind of interesting. You know, there are guys out there who, even though nobody really says, uh, we're absolutely convinced that uh, the Shroud of Turin is the burial cloth of Christ, and it proves that Jesus is the Messiah or something like that. Uh, there are very few people, I think, that actually hold to anything like that. For most Christians, most believers, it's just a very interesting relic. Whether it's real or not is kind of up in the air. Um, but yet people spend their time trying to debunk it. So uh, it's kind of interesting. And, and this has been done before, too. This is not new. I remember the uh, time back in the 80s when it was being very carefully analyzed uh, by scientists and they were allowed to have samples of it. And at the time, it was making a big uproar in the press. And there were guys then that were trying to duplicate the Shroud of Turin and using um, statuary and putting cloth over it and then daubing on different kinds of pigments and saying, hey, look, I just duplicated it. And, you know, they could create something that looked like a negative because all you need is black and white, you know, just a white background and a black color, and then you reverse it, and guess what? You've got a negative. Mm -hmm. So that you can make a negative very easily, And but the one of the mysterious things about the shroud is that if you put that, the level, the intensity of the darkness and lightness through a computer, it makes a three-dimensional image. So that it appears that the closer the cloth was to the uh, physical uh, body, 
the darker the image was. And so it doesn't sound like somebody painted this image exactly on the, on right. the sheet. Exactly right. And now if you know that, if you know ahead of time that the parts that are closer to the cloth have to be darker, then of course you can mimic it. Sure. So so the fact that somebody duplicates a shroud of Turin doesn't prove a thing. I mean it'd be like saying I have duplicated all the evidence that O.J. Simpson killed his wife. So that means he didn't do it because I duplicated all the evidence. You mean the gloves? Yeah. <laughs> I got gloves just like his and, you know, and I got shoe prints and I could take a shoe that is the same make that he used to own and I could um, dip it in blood and I made sure that it was the same uh, uh, blood mm. type and... Um, Put it on. Put the marks on the sidewalk there in front of her house, and see if I could do it. Then I guess who was that guy? Um, Mark Furman, the police officer back then. Yeah, the detective. That's right. So if I could do it, then he could do it. So that proves that he did it. Right? It's ridiculous. So, so a, a nice, interesting uh, point. But um, and I don't think most Christians base their faith on the resurrection on that particular artifact either so even if they did debunk it it really isn't that big a deal exactly exactly that so um so very interesting that people are still concerned about the shroud of turin but sometime we'll have to go into it a little more in depth because there there have been some interesting discoveries about what they think actually um, made the image but um uh, maybe we'll save that for another time all right the second interesting item is that there's news on the James Ossuary. Kirk, have you heard of the James Ossuary? Yes. That's, yeah, that's the uh, bone box that uh, it apparently is James, the brother of Jesus's ossuary. Mm-hmm. And there was some question as to whether it was authentic or not. Right. Well, it, apparently there's been new study of it because this whole thing is going through this big court case in Jerusalem. Right. That there's more evidence that there is a, an authentic patina inside. And a, the patina is the coating that gets on everything, ancient relics. Mm-hmm. And it proves that they're very, very old if that patina is there. Like the green coloring on the Statue of Liberty, the way copper ages. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Except that it's uh, it, it gets on everything, um, things like rocks and stuff, um, that even though they're not oxidizing. And people too? <laughs> yeah, I guess if you sat still long enough. I think enough. I know a couple of people with a patina. <laughs> He's not talking about you, John. No. Okay. Present company excluded. There you go. <laughs> and the, so that's, that's, Interesting. We'll so see. have they decided that it's authentic or not authentic? Well, it's just more, uh, you know, it's one of those who knows things. It's just more evidence that it may actually be authentic. Uh, it it cha- seems to change every day. One day it's authentic and the next day it's not. That's right. It depends It depends on whose uh, ox is being gored at the time. And uh, finally, I got this interesting thing on global warming in the mail now. You know, global warming doesn't really have anything to do with Christian evidences, except for this fact. It's that we can't put too much trust in the um, scientific ideas of the day. I mean, it's, you know, obviously we give them... That's the a ba- theme in my book. Yes, you I know it is. can't always trust what scientists say. That's right. I know it is, yes. And I think that's very important. And, you know, if we did, we would have... Uh, follow the eugenics movement 
to its end because mm-hmm. uh, eugenics was pushed hard by all the top scientific universities and uh, organizations mm-hmm. uh, until World War II. But, uh, and now we're getting the climate change, global warming thing being pushed hard. So this was an interesting uh, little tidbit. It comes from it's something called the Skeptic's Handbook, and I think you can order it online uh, if you uh, Google that, the Skeptic's Handbook. And, that sounds uh, like a fun publication. Yeah, it's done by a, a group out of Australia. Uh, it doesn't say what university it's from, but but anyways, they point out that in the modeling, you know, all this greenhouse gas warming thing is done by models, and they they project. They use computers to project, and and it shows that if carbon dioxide increases, the Earth will increase by so many degrees. Mm-hmm. Um, what it shows, though, is that the atmosphere above the equator between 5 kilometers up to about 15 kilometers should be the source of the heat and that you would be able to identify that's coming from the carbon dioxide, that the carbon dioxide molecules are you know, generating the infrared um, that creates the heat. Mm-hmm. And when they look at the atmosphere, though, even though we supposedly are now warmer than we were um, 100 years ago, the plume, the source of the heat, is not there. It's not uh, in that atmospheric range above the equator that it ought to be if it was coming from uh, carbon dioxide. Hmm. So that's just one more evidence uh, that the climate models are wrong. I actually read uh, recently, too, that uh, they were saying for a while that the Arctic ice was melting at an, at an alarming rate, and they were worried about the survival of the polar bears right. and all that. I heard that this last year was one of the coldest years in the Arctic in recent memory, and that the ice is starting to reform itself. Yeah, So it's, you can make whatever you want to out of that. Right, right. Yeah, it's actually been uh, eight or ten years uh, since we've been warming. And it seems to actually be following the sunspots. So there's been a decline in sunspot activity, and so the temperature has gotten colder. If I can believe the account that I read, it sounds like it's starting to go back the other way again, the way weather often does. It has cycles where it's warmer, then it's colder. I know. In 30 years, they'll be telling us that uh, prepare for the next ice age. Do you remember the 70s when they were telling us that? Yes, I do. I I very much do. Poor John, you know. He's just a young guy. has no idea what we're talking about but yep well if you'd like to call us you can call in at 609-398-1020 you're listening to evidence for faith well kirk let's get back to your book Um, now for those who weren't with us uh, last time we were uh, interviewing the author kirk hastings about his book what is truth and its subtitle is A Handbook for Separating Fact from Fiction in a Propaganda-Filled World. And I really like the book. Um, let me just read the biography on the back again because uh, we'll reintroduce you to our audience. Kirk Hastings is a former skeptic of religion who grew up with no religious training, but in his mid-twenties decided to conduct a personal unbiased study of the world's religions to see if any of them had any basis in solid objective evidence. After over 30 years of studying the subject, he came to the conclusion that Christianity, based on the Bible, is the only religious belief system grounded in reason, unbiased scientific evidences, and verifiable history. 
Kirk and his wife, Sally, an elementary school teacher, live in Summers Point, New Jersey. So he's a local local guy, an author, and I like his book. It's available on Amazon.com? Yes, and I think BarnesandNoble.com and most of the major internet booksellers. Great. And really, any bookstore could probably order a copy for you if they don't have one. Now, who's this book for? Uh, it's for new Christians, old Christians, and everybody in between that wants to know why they believe what they believe. Well, um, you begin right off with um, how to tell um, true things from false things, mm-hmm. that, that there's certain ways, a, a, a framework that you should use. So tell us about that, because I, I know we went over that, but I think that's so important. Well, I, I'm I'm not really an expert in this type of thing. I'm sure there are people that could explain it better, better than I do. But I just I tried to follow a logical pattern in my book, starting out with um, some ideas about how to uh, sift evidence that you find. Mm-hmm. How do you tell what evidence has stu- substance to it? What evidence doesn't really mean anything? Um, you have to start somewhere. Right. So in the first couple of chapters, I talk about things like how I um, followed my own search for truth over the years, which basically is what this book is about, Um, ways to help discern what's real and what isn't, how to sift evidence to um, find out whether it has substance to it or not, and Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, a little little course in uh, logic and evidence and probability and that type of thing to get you started on how to uh, pick and choose between things that make logical sense and things that don't. Right, right, right. You look at, you have to look at the evidence. What's got evidence? What is logical, what follows the rules and laws of logic, mm-hmm. and what is most likely, what is most probable, um, I like to compare it to mathematics. Mathematics is logical. You know, 2 plus 2 is always going to equal 4. It's not going to equal 6 or 8 or anything else. And I think you can apply the same kind of logic to other aspects of life and other kinds of evidence and work out a logical conclusion from what you find. Right, right. So so that's the approach you take, and then you go through um, all kinds of interesting... Um, items which we we went over uh, last week. We did the uh, origin of life. Um, did the universe always exist? Um, the different types of evolution, uh, micro and macro evolution. Yes. And uh, Dr. It's Mike always and I, important to define your terms when you're talking about evolution because absolutely. evolution to one person may mean something totally different to someone else, and you have to have a basis for your argument, or else you won't get anywhere. Right. Right. And we talked about the Cambrian explosion, what the fossil record really shows, that there isn't this uh, uh, small progression of slight changes over a long period of time, but actually the changes are very sudden and very rapid. Yes, and even some evolutionists will admit that if you press them on it. That's right. That's right. And then uh, you have a chapter on uh, additional problems with evolution. But I like the fact that you also gave some positive evidences because that's one of the criticisms I've heard of apologists is that, uh, you know, you guys, um, you will downplay evolution, but then you don't have anything 
to replace it with. You don't have a response. Mm-hmm. There's no positive uh, evidence for your view. And right. actually, in your book, you do discuss some of that. Yes, I also, uh, one of the chapters in my book is called, Is the Concept of Intelligent Design Scientific? Right. right. You know, it's not enough to say that, well, the pieces really aren't fitting together with this Darwinian Darwinian evolution thing. You also have to say, okay, what kind of evidence do we have that indicates that the intelligent design concept might be the answer? Right. And there is quite a bit of evidence that supports it. Yeah, so... um so I, I really like the layout of your book. Then you go over um, some uh, different ideas about uh, superstition, philosophy, religion. Um, a lot of people mix those things up into yeah, a stew. And uh, I wanted to have a chapter in my book to kind of separate them. You know, what, what exactly is religion? What is philosophy? What is superstition? What is legend? What is myth? How are they all defined and what separates them? Well, go ahead and expand on that then, because I don't think we covered that uh, last time. Uh, well, it's kind of a deep subject, actually. Mm-hmm. It's, it's um, I, you know, I, I hate to say, you know, go out and buy my book, but right. uh, <laughs> the best way to, to, to answer that question is to have someone read the chapter that I have in my book on that. On It's called Superstition, Philosophy, and Religion. Uh-huh. And it basically gives you a groundwork to separate the three things so that, again, when you uh, are arguing about, you know, is there anything to religion? Is there anything to superstition? You know, is this myth? Is it legend? Right. You have to be able to recognize the professional definitions of these concepts. And it once you do, you'll realize that when people say things like, uh, oh, the Bible is full of myths and legends. Mm-hmm. Well, according to the professional definitions of myths and legends, no, the stories in the Bible are not, don't fit into those categories. They're not written in the style of myth or legend. They're written as history. Right. So if you're going to, for instance, read Caesar's Gallic Wars and say, this is history, then when you read the Old Testament, and the stories of the patriarchs, you have to also say this is written in the same style. This also should be taken as history. It's not written like, for instance, the stories of the Greek gods, which are myths and legends. It's not anywhere near the same style of writing. Right. And another thing that you do by, if you know the difference between uh, philosophy and and, religious views, you'll notice that when scientists start pitching ideas uh, like naturalism, the idea that you can only explain things uh, without any kind of supernatural causes, that you can only explain things based on uh, nature and what we have now, Mm -hmm. that that is actually a metaphysical philosophy. That's a personal philosophy. Right. It is not a scientific statement because they have absolutely no objective evidence to prove that that is the case. That's right. So the, It's it, like trying to say, well, prove that God doesn't exist. Well, how do you do that? And right. you, you know, you just, uh, it's impossible to do something like that. Right. And, you know, people will say, well, prove that he does exist. Well, okay. What, then your next question should be, what evidence would you require to prove to you that God exists? Right. And if you give me a set of rules, then I can respond to that question. But if you just say, well, prove that God exists, 
it's a nonsense question. You really can't, you don't have any basis to respond to a, a question like that, that that's so open-ended. Right, right. So then you go into um, the case for the reliability of the Bible. So why is that next? How does that fit into your progression of thought through the book? Well, as you go through the first half of my book, which is dealing with a lot of the scientific evidence for and against the ideas of Darwinian evolution on the one hand and intelligent design or creationism on the other, uh, eventually you're going to come to the point where you have to choose which side you believe has the more evidence to support it. Did the universe create itself with no intelligent agent involved, or was there some kind of a supernatural, superhuman, intelligent agent involved that created it? Once you get to the point of saying, okay, I think some kind of intelligent being must have created all this, your next question is, how do I find out something about who that intelligent being is? And I say that one of the best places to start is the Bible. Great, great. Um, you have a, a chapter on the reliability of the Bible, so, um, and that's what um, our topic is for the rest of the, the day today. So let's get into that, why don't we? If you've just joined us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And this is Kirk Hastings, uh, the our guest host for the week. That's right. Our call-in number is 609 398 1020. Feel free to call in if you'd like to join the conversation or you have questions or you'd like to challenge either one of us. We, we should have a challenge the apologist day, you know, ask us, try and stump us. That'd be a good one. I like that. Well, let's get into reliability of the scriptures. How do we know? Now, there are, there are two ways you can look at uh, reliability of the scriptures. You can ask the question, is what is in the Bible uh, accurate in the sense of historically accurate? Okay, so and, and I call that the biblical accuracy. Mm-hmm. But today we're going to look at, and we're going to look at that next week, but uh, today we're going to look at the reliability of the Bible. Mm-hmm. In other words, no matter what they wrote, whether it was accurate or inaccurate, how do we know that what we have today is what they wrote? I mean, That's a good hasn't, question. hasn't the Bible changed over time? I hear that all the time. And, uh, you know, especially you'll hear people say, well, they passed on the Bible through oral tradition for many centuries, and then they wrote it down. So, of course, it can't be accurate. You know, it's been passed on by oral tradition. And, you know, look at all the different versions that are out there. So if one version after another is different then obviously over the centuries, there's just no relationship to what we have today and and what they wrote, so you can't possibly know what they wrote. So that's a good story. Unfortunately, it doesn't happen to be true. (laughs) That's right. That's right. We looked at, uh, two weeks ago, we looked at where did the Bible come from, so we know how we got the what we call the canon of the New Testament and the 27 books that are there and how that came about, but we still have this question of the reliability. So so let's delve into that. There's uh, three facts that show 
that it's not true that the Bible is changed over time, that we actually have what was initially written down. So we're going to go over those three facts, and the first one is that we have many, many ancient copies of the books of the Bible. So, and you discuss this in your in your book. I actually have a chart in my book on page 89 uh, that's titled The Historical Accuracy of the New Testament as Compared to Other Ancient Documents. Mm-hmm. And I list uh, a bunch of ancient documents like uh, written by Homer and Plato and Aristotle and Julius Caesar and some other historical figures. And I compare the documents that we have that they supposedly wrote with the New Testament. Well, go ahead and give us um, some of the numbers there. The comparison is very interesting. I, I, uh, in my list, I have the approximate date where the original was written, the earliest surviving copy that we have of each of these documents, the time span between those two things. Right, and that's and actually then, the second evidence, is that there's a short time span between the originals and the copies that we actually possess. Yes. One of the outstanding evidences for the New Testament is that uh, the, some of the earliest surviving copies we have of it are only within 45 to 75 years of when the originals were written. Right. Historically, that's a drop in the bucket. Right. Uh, when you compare the fact that the oldest copy, for instance, that we have of the Iliad written by Homer uh, was written in 400 B.C. Now, the original was supposedly written in 800 B.C. So we're talking about the earliest copy we have of this document is 400 years older than the original document was. Yet the documents of the Old Testament are within 45 years Mm -hmm. of when they were originally written. Now, how about numbers? What's what's the comparison between the number of manuscripts, ancient manuscripts? Well, here's an interesting one. I'm sure that uh, most high school students at least know what Caesar's Gallic Wars is, okay. especially if you have to study Latin. Um, the number of copies in existence of this document, we have 10 ancient copies of this that date, the earliest surviving copy dates from 900 A.D. That's the oldest copy we have. Now, Caesar wrote this document in 60 B.C. So that means the oldest copy that we have is a thousand years after he wrote it. Mm -hmm. And there's only 10 copies, 10 ancient copies of this document of any age in existence. Now, when you compare that to the, the ancient documents that we have of the New Testament, there's almost 25,000 copies of the New Testament from ancient times still floating around. Wonderful. Now, that's amazing. Yes. And this chart that I have here, there's no other ancient document that comes anywhere near having that many ancient copies right. of the original floating right. around. Right. Uh, I've got a... a uh sound recording a clip from a professor of ancient history, Dr. Paul Mayer, who talks about the Dead Sea Scrolls, because the Dead Sea Scrolls, their discovery was an incredible boost to the reliability Mm -hmm. of the scriptures 
We found copies of the Old and the New Testament within those scrolls that were up to a thousand years older than the copies we had up to that point. That's right. Which was like in 1948 when they found these scrolls. So it was a perfect way to to, uh, test and see there's a thousand year period. How accurately have mm-hmm. the copies been made down through the centuries? How do these old copies compare with what we have now? So Dr. Mayer is answering the question, has the Bible been changed over time? Let's hear what he has to say. This is a very, very important question because how do we know that the translations that we read today in Holy Scripture or the Bible resemble the original manuscripts? Over the centuries, some have claimed that scribal errors were intruding and then there were copies of the errors and those got exaggerated so that today we don't have much resembling what the original manuscripts were like. Well, this argument is faulty. In fact, it's totally wrong. This was demonstrated in 1947 when the famous Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered and in the caves at Qumran and along the Dead Sea where they were discovered, they found a scroll of Isaiah that was 250 years old, even in Jesus' day. This was a thrilling discovery because now it gave biblical scholars a chance to compare the writing, the text of Isaiah from 250 BC with the earliest manuscript version we have of Isaiah, which is the so-called Masoretic text from the 11th century A.D. Now there was a 1,350 year span against which to check the accuracy of the biblical manuscripts as they were recopied. The result, 99.8% exactly the same language. And so the various modern Bible translations that we have today, nearly all of which are very reliable, are based on an extremely reliable text. Okay, that uh, that was Dr. Paul Mayer, um, professor of ancient history, and it's from a very good DVD that you can pick up called Jesus Factor Fiction. So, so, so there's this idea that people have that as each copy is made from prior copies, then errors, of course, naturally creep in because mm-hmm. they didn't have Xerox machines, they didn't have printing presses, so they had to actually copy things out by hand. Mm-hmm. And every time they did it, there's bound to be a couple of mistakes, and then they throw away the old one, and now you got the new one with the mistakes in it, and so then they copy again, and now you got some more errors, and then you throw away the old one. And it's very similar, they say, to the idea of the telephone game. Do you remember the telephone game that mm-hmm. we used to play in kindergarten? so that the kids all line up or they go all around in a circle and somebody, the teacher maybe, will whisper something into the first kid's ear. We even played that in high school. Yeah, okay, great. Well, high school's like kindergarten these days, right? So, um, so. Let's not get into that. That's right. And then uh, the next person passes it on and whispers. Mm -hmm. So no one can hear, only that person. So you get this single one-to-one transmission around the circle until at the end, because each time you've transmitted it, there's a uh, some possibility of error creeping in. At mm-hmm. the end, you get this sentence that is nothing like the first sentence. Right. And that's what they say this copying process was like. 
but in reality, but only someone with total ignorance of how the Bible was transmitted over the centuries would would compare that because it was nothing like that at all. That's right. That's Actually, right. the the way the Bible documents were transmitted would be more like in this game if you had the person at the very end of the line go back to the beginning of the line and ask the first person what did you say right and he repeats what he said that's more like how the bible documents were transmitted that's rather right. than going through a bunch of different people and finally coming out you know all screwed up at the end right yeah you actually had <coughs> a letter uh, arriving say at a church and you have a letter from an apostle and so uh, the church then would make copies they'd make many copies of that letter and pass it around to all of the other uh, local churches in the area mm-hmm. then those churches would likewise make many copies and uh, transmit those around so um, you had a, a kind of a uh, um, three-dimensional or two-dimensional spread uh, around the whole Mediterranean region, some some of the manuscripts actually being translated into other languages. Um, and uh, so even if you had an early copy, the maybe the first and second copies um, were destroyed, lost, because they were just so old that they were falling apart, mm-hmm. you could still figure out what was in the originals by comparing the third and fourth generations because up to na- by then now you're up to many dozens and hundreds of copies mm-hmm. and the thing is that when a copyist makes a mistake they don't make the same mistake mm-hmm. so if As you've got a copyist would that's right so if you've got a hundred copies and maybe each copy has four or five mistakes in it they're not the same four or five mistakes. Right. So you can now know absolutely with certainty what the original document said. Because when you compare the hundred different copies, that's right. you can see what the differences are, and you can work your way back to what the original must have said by weeding out all the errors. Exactly. Even though you don't have it. You can still tell right. what it says. It's it's if your grandmother had a special family recipe, and um, she's given it to all her children, and those children have given it to their children, mm-hmm. and one day she loses the recipe, so she calls up all her children and says, "Hey, I lost the recipe. Can you send it to me?" Oh, well, you know what? We've lost ours too. So now you have that whole level is lost. But they can go to the grandkids. And even if they have thrown things out like, you know, I thought it was too salty, so I changed the salt amount. Mm -hmm. Or I like chocolate chips, so I threw in chocolate chips. Mm -hmm. Or um, I'm allergic to whatever, so I left that out. You could still, by gathering up the 20 or so recipes from the great-grandchildren, you could still easily tell what the original Mm -hmm. recipe was. And that's a, a more accurate way of looking at how the Bible. So now when we compare that to what, Kirk, what you said as to how many manuscripts we have about, what was it, 25,000? Mm-hmm. And in the Greek language alone, there's more than 5,000. Mm-hmm. Um, you get this uh, obvious um, it, it, obvious conclusion that they can know with very, very good precision what the original said. Um Here's a another <laughs> quote. I have a soundtrack from 
um, Daniel Wallace, who is an expert uh, in the New Testament, and he's answering the question, uh, is the New Testament the same as the originals? So he's talking about Bible accuracy. Let's hear what he has to say. It's a valid question. The short answer is essentially yes. The reason this question can be asked is because we don't possess the original documents of the New Testament, and, and no two copies are exactly alike. But this situation is no different from any other ancient literature. The originals have all vanished. All we have are imperfect copies. However, unlike these other historical and literary writings, we have an embarrassment of riches in the New Testament manuscripts. The writings of ancient historians such as Livy, Tacitus, Herodotus, Thucydides, all have paltry remains, numbering in the dozens at best, and they are all many centuries later than the originals. But the Greek copies of the New Testament number more than 5,600 and counting, with some of the earliest copies coming within decades of the original text. Besides the Greek manuscripts, there are thousands of early translations and over one million quotations of the New Testament by ancient patristic writers. Both in the quantity and the date of the manuscripts, there's absolutely nothing in ancient literature that compares with the wealth of data that we have for the New Testament. So how do scholars work through this huge pile of evidence? You may have played the telephone game as a child where one person whispers something to the next and so on down the line. By the time you get to the end, the message is, is garbled. But let's say the original person spoke to three different people in three different lines. The best way to reconstruct what that person originally said is to talk to the first person in each line and make some comparisons. This is what New Testament scholars do to reconstruct the original text. They look at the earliest written manuscripts from diverse locations. We are now certain of over 99% of the original New Testament, and of the remaining 1% there are finite options. And when you actually look at these manuscripts, you discover an interesting phenomenon. The vast majority of differences cannot even be translated. Most of them are spelling differences, such as whether the name John in Greek has two N's or one. And of the more substantial variants, not one of those that has any claim to authenticity affects any cardinal truth of Scripture. Well, that's pretty convincing, sounds to me. It is. It is. And especially, uh, personally, I've found that it really helped me to study a little bit about how some of the other uh, religious books and manuscripts came about. Oh. Uh, and compare them with how the Bible was put together. And when you see the difference in how these documents were transmitted over the centuries, you really clearly see how the Bible is in a category all its own. Yeah, the um, the scribes, the people, um, in particular with the Old Testament, the Jewish scribes, um, they had a, a very a strong reverence for the text, and that it, it made them want to be as accurate as possible. And they were able to, over centuries and centuries and centuries, uh, transmit the text with astonishing accuracy. They had, um, they had. I'm sure you know. They had very, very strict rules about uh, how the the text could be copied. Yes. For instance, one uh, thing that one rule was that you couldn't write anything from memory. Mm -hmm. So you couldn't look at. You couldn't write even a single letter from memory. If you looked at the text, you had to write. Then go down and write that letter. You couldn't then write the next letter from memory. Mm -hmm. You had to go back to the text to double-check 
and find out what the next letter was. Another test that they uh, put these manuscripts through would be that they would count the number of letters in the entire manuscript, such as, for instance, the book of John. They would count how many letters are in the entire document, and they would find the midpoint, the letter that is exactly in the middle of that manuscript. Then they would have someone else count after it was copied. They would count the letters again, and unless that letter fell exactly in the midpoint where it did with the first scribe, they would assume that there was a mistake somewhere and throw the whole document out and start copying and start again. over again. Exactly. And they would count from the back to the front and the front to the back. Yeah, they had all these kind of cross-references and checks yes. that they could do. To so, make sure that they didn't make a single mistake in the entire document. Yeah. It, it's so different from the way we copy documents today. So in the example of from the Dead Sea Scrolls to the Masoretic text that we had uh, from the Middle Ages, um, the variations are things like style or spelling, where somebody apparently you know, just deliberately said they were going to change the spelling to the correct spelling, the today's spelling. Mm-hmm. And those are the only things, but nothing that obscures the original meaning at all. No. Here's a quote that I have uh, from Eugene Ulrich. It says, the scrolls have shown that our traditional Bible has been amazingly accurately preserved for over 2,000 years. So, uh, and here's another quote. This is from F.F. Bruce, the uh, great uh, New Testament scholar. He says, the variant readings about which any doubt remains among textual critics of the New Testament affect no material question of historic fact or of Christian faith and practice. So you can have confidence that what you're reading when you pick up your version, you know, mm-hmm. whether it's King James or NIV or uh, whatever it is, um, you you have confidence that uh, it's what what the authors actually wrote. Mm-hmm. So and so we so the three evidences then are the. Um, the amazing number of copies that we have, which the more copies there are, then the more accurate you can know that the uh, that the manuscript is. Mm-hmm. The high quality of the manuscripts, and then the and then the final thing that we touched on briefly was that the time span between the originals and the earliest copies that we actually possess that are still intact is unusually short for virtually every other uh, ancient manuscript. Mm-hmm. So there's really better better manuscript evidence than any other ancient document. All right. <clears throat> now let's see here. Um, we've got, uh, here's another quote that I had. This one's from Jeffrey Shearer. He says, Very little of the main historical narratives of the Bible is disputed. The patriarch narratives fit comfortably in the historical context that modern archaeology has helped to reconstruct, and that context places the patriarchs precisely where they should be, rather than in the hands of a post-exilic writer. Now, the reason I I included this quote is because about 150 years ago, there was a theory developed that the Old Testament was actually written during the Babylonian exile, and it hadn't existed before. Or whatever did exist was part of this, what they called the oral tradition. 
and was just kind of stories that had been passed down from generation to generation and were really legend and um, nothing more than that. And because the Israelites were in exile, that the leaders felt that they needed to build up the image of the Israelites and create a national consciousness. So they started to write the Old Testament. So this now you're talking about uh, uh, 500 BC uh, that they were in exile. So so um, everything from the books of Genesis, Moses, the story of the Exodus, all of that was supposedly written and just kind of made up and written during the exilic, the exile period. Mm-hmm. So um, the problem is. That, as this quote uh, from Jeffrey Shearer points out, is that they got everything exactly right. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it used to be believed at the time that they developed this theory, um, it was believed that there wasn't a lot of writing um, by the patriarchs. And that, uh, that uh, other than maybe hieroglyphics in Egypt, that Moses, I've read articles that said that Moses couldn't write. Um, so he couldn't possibly have written the books of Genesis because he didn't know how to write, and people in those days didn't know how to write. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the truth is quite uh, the opposite. Uh, in fact, um, all the way back to the patriarchal times of Abraham, um, the people in the region of the Mediterranean not only wrote, they wrote profusely. Mm-hmm. They wrote down uh, everything, basically, um, business contracts, shopping lists, um, conversations. Um, uh, you know, we have dug up so much from the times of the patriarchs, um, their histories, their communications. I was just going to say that one of the topics we haven't touched on yet is the archaeological uh, evidence for the reliability of the Bible, which is huge. Right. And you're touching on that now that. I I have read some of those critics, too, who said, you know, at the time Moses lived, they didn't even have writing then, so how could he have written the first five books of the Old Testament? Right. But they've since made uh, numerous archaeological discoveries that have pushed the uh, beginning of writing farther and farther back into history, and now it's way beyond where Moses lived. That's right. So he's easily within the time span now, according to the archaeological evidence yep. of having written these books. Right. Yeah, it's, it goes all the way back to the time of Abraham. Yep. So um, uh, so it makes it very likely, in fact, that Moses, because um, tradition says that Moses actually edited the books of Genesis. Um, so that someone, even possibly Adam himself, had already written down some accounts of right. the creation, for instance, and that these had been passed down through From, the generations until Moses got a hold of them and then edited them into the book of Genesis. Right, and there is internal evidence that looks like uh, there that uh, Moses did actually edit other texts, mm-hmm. and um, uh, so it's it's. Uh, fascinating how the evidence, the archaeological evidence, is really showing that um, that uh, Moses and all the prophets and uh, other authors of the Old Testament actually did write at the time. Mm-hmm. So um, 
uh, let's take a look at some of the comparisons. Uh, if you you look at the time frame before Abraham, the archaeologists have found that the Bible actually makes accurate cultural references, language references, and legal styles. So the way people spoke, mm -hmm. um, the way they did their contracts, uh, and cultural references are exactly right. Mm -hmm. Now, remember, this would be something like... And as they find more and more old documents, mm -hmm. other than the Bible, they can compare them with the way the Bible's written, and that's how they come up with what you just said. They, exactly. They find out how it is written in the style of the way other documents at the same time were written. So how would it be possible if the Old Testament was written during the Babylonian exile? How would it be possible that they would know how things were 2,000 years before. Mm -hmm. It's not like they had advanced archaeological studies going on. Right. They didn't. So for them to exactly get right, things like marriage ceremonies, how were marriage ceremonies done, mm -hmm. um, how were business transactions uh, 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 transacted, you know, um, those kinds of things, the details that we find in other documents such as the Ebla tablets, uh, which uh, came from the time of Abraham, and we have over 10,000 of those tablets, writings, mm -hmm. a whole library full of documents of all different types. Uh, then you So the biblical uh, manuscripts fit right within the historical context of when they were supposed to have been written. That's right. With exactly the, the way people talked, the way they made their contracts, the way they did their business dealings, mm -hmm. exactly fits the Old Testament. Then if you look at the time of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, um, then here still you have accurate cultural references. Um, even we have terrific um, archaeological evidence that Joseph was mentioned by name in some texts. In specifically, there's a text that references buying grain from Egypt and has the name Joseph in it. Wow. So... Um, so, uh, fantastic corroboration. Then if you look at the time period of the Exodus and the conquest, you've got the Exodus plagues actually mentioned in some Egyptian writings that sound very, very similar to what's described in the Bible. Mm -hmm. You have the fall of Jericho's walls happening at exactly the right time. Um, even uh, little tiny details, for instance, there's this use, the way they used to use the term Pharaoh. Uh, in the time of Moses, the Pharaoh was just called Pharaoh. But within about a hundred years later, it was always Pharaoh and then his name, you know, mm -hmm. Pharaoh Tutankhamun or Pharaoh whoever. Right. And so that was the predominant for the rest of Egyptian history. It was always done that way. So if you're in, uh, a, if you're going to make up the Bible, at the time of the Babylonian uh, exile, mm -hmm. you're not going to know that precisely at the time that Moses was there in Egypt, they didn't call the pharaohs by their names. Right. You wouldn't have known, so you would right. have written it wrong. So, so all of these things, um, there's even a uh, presence of uh, Asiatic slaves, which the Egyptians called Habiru. Habiru. Interesting. Sounds mm. very similar to Hebrew. Yeah. Um, and some of those Habiru slaves had biblical names. 
They lived in homes that architecturally are the same as the homes that the the Israelites would later build in the Promised Land. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is a uh, archaeological find of a tomb in the place where these slaves lived that possibly may be the the uh, tomb of Joseph. So some speculation on that, but a very interesting archaeological sign. Hmm. So the history, um, pardon me for my voice. Boy, I'm, I'll be back next week with a better voice, although not as deep probably. <laughs> so the history of the Israelite nation um, before the exile has been corroborated by all these archaeological finds. Um, some examples are the Taylor prism, the Moabite stone, which I found out is in the Louvre. And if I had known when I was in the Louvre the last time, I would have gone and looked for it. Uh, the Tel Dan steel, all of these finds that have been, a lot of them in the past 100, 150 years, that have proved that uh, the Old Testament is extremely reliable. Yes. So there's absolutely no basis for any skepticism of the Bible's historical claims. Um, it's got excellent manuscript evidence and its historical and archaeological accuracy. And really, you can trust the Bible you have in your hand. John, uh, do we still have time to play the last sound clip from Daniel Wallace about different Bible versions and how accurate they are? We don't. Rats. We'll have to we do We talk that. too much. I, yeah. What is up with that? And me with a sore throat, you could have saved my voice. <laughs> no, you're making Next week. Tune in next week for... <laughs> So there's no evidence that there was any long period of uh, oral tradition. No. Um, so. The Bible simply wasn't transmitted that way. That's right. Sorry, folks. <laughs> so we are next week we're going to um, look at some contested historical claims of the biblical record. So we'll actually dig down into the accuracy of the Bible. Now we know that it's reliable. What was written is what you have in your hands. But that doesn't mean that what they wrote down was true, does it? Not necessarily. necessarily. Right, not necessarily. So next week we're going to look in depth at that. Is what they wrote down actually accurate? Does it match what we can dig up when we go and, and look and see and try to confirm some of these things? Say, that was I'm telling you, that was a great show. Good job, John. All right. Um, so that's that's what's up for next week. You have been listening to Evidence for Faith, the show where we help Christians become thinkers and thinkers become Christians. And just remember, the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. Christians are wrong, even bad People rest in peace, it gets enough Attacks, I know men doubt But it's fact, it's not like any map Shows exactly where it's at And just like gravity You cannot see it really exists And it does no good, but men deny it Just to stay in essence